1: Each man's life touches so many other lives. When he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't
0: he? Welcome to What a Life with Paul Batura. Paul is a best-selling author, writer, Fox News contributor, and vice president of communications at Focus on the Family. This is a show about the extraordinary value of every life. It's a show about movers, shakers, and culture shapers. And now, here's your host, Paul Batura.
2: Well, it's good to be with you all. And thanks for that introduction, Dr. Bill. That's Bill Meyer, our good friend. And among other things, the announcer for Dr. Chuck Swindoll and Insight for Living. But special thanks to the Salem Media Network for airing and distributing the program and to Matt, who is engineering and producing it today. Now, a friend of mine once told me that the reason he loves to play golf is because by doing so, he finds himself in the the middle, I should say, the middle of beautiful places. I've always liked that because it's true. And I think it's also one of the reasons many of us enjoy watching the game. It's hard to beat the serenity and the majesty of a perfectly manicured golf course. And it was the legendary comedian Bob Hope who said, if you watch a game, it's fun. If you play it, it's recreation. If you work at it, it's golf. Well, our guest today has worked at golf all his life. His name is Larry Mize. He currently plays on the Champions Tour and he's enjoyed a remarkable career on the PGA Tour beginning in 1980. He's won 10 tournaments, but none bigger probably than the Masters in 1987 when he dazzled the world and broke Greg Norman's heart in dramatic fashion. Of course, we're going to talk about that, but Larry is about a lot more than just golf. He's a strong believer in Jesus Christ. He's a happily married man. He's a father and a grandfather, and it's a delight to have him join us. Welcome to the program, Larry.
1: Oh, thank you, Paul. It's good to be with you.
2: Well, let's start out here. I noticed your name. Uh, you don't see the middle name too often, but I saw that your middle name is Hogan. And I'm just curious, is there any connection to Ben Hogan?
1: You know, believe it or not, there's not. My uh, my great-grandmother, her married, her last her married name was Hogan. And so it's just a family name. And as uh, a matter of fact, when I was born, nobody played golf. My, my dad took it up... Uh, Later, when he was about 35, he started playing, but nobody played golf, and just an amazing coincidence. It's just a family name that has uh, no connection to golf.
2: Okay. Well, it seemed like you were destined uh, to to play. Um, let me ask you this at the start. Why do you love golf so much?
1: You know, well, that's, that's a good question. I, I think uh, I just fell in love with it at an early age, you know, being born and raised in Augusta, Georgia with the Masters Tournament. I think that had part of it, had a lot to do with it. and. My dad and my mom played too, but my my dad, you know, playing golf with him, I think that had a big role. And I, I just, I loved it. I, I think some of the aspects I love about golf is, you know, play good, play bad. You look in the mirror, it's all on you. You know, you go out there and you earn what you, uh, you have to work and earn what you get. And uh, there are no guarantees and nobody to blame it on, but yourself. So there are a lot of things that I like about golf, but I think you know, just growing up in Augusta my my dad playing, I think that had a lot to do with it.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, growing up uh, in the capital of golf, so to speak, for the United States, um, what was your childhood like? You had brothers, uh, brother and a sister, I think, right? And uh, happily par- married parents?
1: Yes. Uh, my parents were happily married for, uh, for many, many years. My, my mother's uh, passed away. Now my dad's still living. But, yep, had a great, uh, great childhood. I'm the youngest of three. I've got a, a brother, uh, Charles, six years older than me, and my sister Lisa is three years older than me. And uh, it was just, it was a great childhood. Uh, interesting. I'm the only one that took up golf. The other two, Charles and Lisa, didn't have any interest in it. But uh, I had a great childhood growing up there in Augusta and uh, very, very blessed.
2: Now, Lisa, I've, I've seen Lisa joke before that you got out of a lot of yard work because people were concerned about you getting blisters on your hands, having to hold the rake and mow the grass. Is that true?
1: That is not true. She likes to have a little fun with that. That is not true. I have uh, cut grass, pulled weeds. Matter of fact, I've even laid sod in the yard. So I've done plenty of yard work. I did not get exempt from it because of my golf.
2: All right. Well, thanks for setting the record straight on that. So your dad was a telephone company executive and uh, didn't play, didn't pick up the game until he was a little older. What, uh, what, you know, kind of instigated that? Did, did he ever tell you the story?
1: You know that's a good question. I'll have to ask him. I don't know that. Uh, but you know, he he took it. It was interesting how he he took it up and the way he got started. That, that whoever helped him had him swing a nine irons for a number of days or maybe a couple of weeks and without going to the golf course to get a feel for it. And it really worked out well because the first time he played golf, he shot he shot he shot around ninety. I mean, he shot a pretty good pretty good wow. score. And uh, you know, my dad was a good athlete, and uh, you know. Became a one handicap, became a very good player. But um, I'm not sure what got him into it, but he got into it and was a good player. And uh, I have fond memories of playing golf with him growing up.
2: Yeah, so that, I mean, the father's influence on us is huge. And, uh, you know, nowadays, kids are kind of one sport uh, focused. Uh, Back then, I would have been unusual. Did you play other sports as well as a kid?
1: I did. Uh, You know, I played football when I was young, and uh, that, 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 that quit early. And I continued to play uh, basketball up through high school. And I really enjoyed the basketball. And after high school, it just went strictly to golf. But I did. And I played baseball when I was young, too. So I played all the sports. and uh, But then it was just basketball and uh, golf through high school. And then, obviously, in college, just golf golf on. Uh, that was the only thing I did there. But enjoyed all the sports. I enjoy all sports, outdoor activity. Always have.
2: And so as a teenager you got to work at the Masters on the scoreboard is that right?
1: Yes, uh you had to be a teenager so I had to wait till I was 13 and somehow I was lucky enough to, to get to get the job, you know, they're not they have a number of kids working out there and I worked on the uh scoreboard on number 3, the third hole. Uh worked on it when I was 13 and 14 for 2 years and that was a uh, a lot of fun, you know, you get a free ticket in there, you get a little ticket for lunch and uh you know, as a little, young teenager, I was loving it. And uh, those are the only two years I worked because after my uh, 14th year, we moved to Columbus. And my dad got transferred to Columbus, Georgia. And we were there for two years before we moved back to Augusta for my senior year. But those two years working were uh, were great. I uh, It's always uh, fun when I play the third hole looking at that scoreboard on number three and remembering being up there putting numbers up. And, uh Having a great time.
2: Yeah, and it's, I mean, one of the few venues that probably hasn't changed too much. I mean, tradition is sacred there. And not to get too into the weeds, uh, how did they relay? I mean, you're up pretty high on that scoreboard, and they didn't have radio. Maybe they ha- they had radios, but I don't know if they used them. How did they relay the scores to you to keep, uh, keep the ticker going?
1: Yeah, they had the radios. There was a guy there with a headset. Matter of fact, one day, I'm sure it was probably the, uh, yeah, it was the second year in 73, I remember I had the headset on one time. I guess it was my second year so I knew what I was doing, but I had the headset on there and they'll tell you what numbers to put up and what to do. So uh yeah, they were uh they were no they knew what they were doing and you're right though. It's it's interesting there are no electronic scoreboards there. They're still the old-fashioned uh putting the numbers up by hand and uh you know and I love that. I think the tradition they do there is great.
2: Yeah, it's kind of like Fenway Park in Boston, right? With the scoreboard and hey. Yeah. So, I mean, how crazy to be a kid up there and putting up scores for people like Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus. And then, of course, little, I mean, I presume maybe you dreamt of playing with them. And then years later, not only are you uh, up on the scoreboard with them, but you're playing with them. Um, Before we get to that, um, we're talking about your family. Did you go to church as a family back then?
1: We did. Uh, we went to the First First Baptist Church in Augusta, Georgia, and uh, we were big church goers. We'd be there Sunday morning, Sunday night, uh, Wednesday night, and uh, spend a lot of time in church, no doubt.
2: Uh, I'm talking with Larry Mize, a legendary uh, professional golfer. You probably know that name from winning the 1987 Masters. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life, Lessons from Legends. Well, Larry, I love to hear that, that you were um, an early church goer and how important that was that is such a foundation and a strong foundation. Um, you're there when the church's doors are open. When do you when do you suggest that you made the faith your own?
1: Well, you know that's a great question. You know, as, as a youngster, I was baptized and made the decision. But I like the way you put that. When I really made it my own was when my uh, oldest son was born in 1986, when David was born. That's when God really got my attention to let me know what it was all about. That golf was important, but it wasn't the most important thing. Uh, The most important thing was getting my life right with him, because even though I'd gone to church and been baptized, I wasn't on the uh, correct road, I don't believe. Um, I I still had faith there, but I was uh, doing too much. It's all about me. Mm. Uh, so but God got my attention with that miracle of David's birth and through that time and through going to the Bible study with Larry Moody, who leads the study, which has been a, a a real blessing to all of us on tour, I came to really understand that it was about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And I needed to get that my number one priority and realize It was a a seven-day-a-week, 24 hour day relationship, Mm. not just about going to church on Sundays and Wednesdays, but it was about every day of my life I needed to be living my life for Christ instead of living for me. And so from that point on, I wanted to glorify God with my golf. Prior to that, it was more about glorifying me with my golf. Mm. So it was a, a great day for me when David was born for, obviously, my first firstborn, but obviously God getting my attention with that uh, to understand it's about a a personal relationship and uh, nothing nothing I could do to earn it. It was a free gift that God gave me through uh, Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, my life has never been the same since that day.
2: Mm. Yeah, the Lord is so gracious to us to give us that time often to work things out and to figure it out. I mean, we're young, we're immature. As you say, we think we know, but we really don't know what we don't know. Um, before we talk about David, let's talk if we could about Bonnie. How did you meet your your beloved wife?
1: Well, she is my beloved wife. You're right. We uh, we met in high school when uh, when my dad got transferred to Columbus in uh, the summer of. We moved here in the uh, summer fall of '73, and I met her in high school there. I was a tenth grader. She was a ninth grader, and uh, you know. I asked her out on a date. We had our first date February 1st, 1974. And, uh, she was my childhood. She was my high school sweetheart. And we dated for, uh, a little, a little over eight years, a little bit on and off when I moved back to Augusta, but still we stayed together and, uh, married in 82. And it was a, uh, one of the best decisions I ever made to marry her.
2: Wow, I love that you you remember the date. I mean, you're coming up, that's the 50th anniversary coming up of, of first going out <laughs> with Bonnie. That's great.
1: Yeah, it, it really is. It's an easy day to remember. I like it, February 1st. It's easy to remember, but uh, it's easy to remember, too, because uh, she, she's a special lady.
2: What did she think about your golf early on? I mean, was she into it? Did she enjoy it? Did she play it?
1: You know, she, she didn't play golf, um, but she was so supportive. I mean, there were a lot of people that, you know, didn't believe I could make it, but she was always behind me the whole way. She, she knew what I wanted to do. She knew it was my dream, and uh, she supported me and she believed I could do it because when she married me, I was, uh, <laughs> I had no money and was struggling out there my first year. So, uh, she's been a a positive influence and uh, really a a big part of uh, big part of my success.
2: That's great. Well, you you talk about your high school years, and I I, I read something where what you would play the junior league over at the augusta country club which is i guess adjacent to augusta national is that right
1: yes that's correct
2: and you could see through uh, the fence at times and yet you said you never wanted to play augusta national until you had earned the right to play there it, was that something was that a conviction that you got at a young age
1: yeah, it really was and i'm 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 sad to say i didn't quite hold to that uh, i did get a chance to play there in nineteen eighty, I believe it was, and I did I did play eighteen holes, but it wasn't quite the same. They were transitioning from the Bermuda greens to the bent greens. So there were a number of temporary greens, like the tenth hole, the green was way down below the where it is now, just over that fairway bunker. And so I really didn't get to to play it totally like it is with all the, you know, six or eight temporary greens. But I did play it then and I'd never played it again until I, you know, won the Danny Thomas Memphis Classic 83. So then in 84, before the tournament, uh, was the first time I played it, uh, you know, all normal holes, no temporary greens. So, it was just, you know, as a kid, a dream. I, I didn't want to get over there because I really wanted to earn my way there and play it and was very fortunate for that to happen.
2: Yeah, you decided to go to Georgia Tech at a high school. And Why did you, What what went into that decision?
1: <laughs> well, they were the only ones that offered me a scholarship. I ah. was uh, I was no uh, all-star coming out of high school. I, I guess I was a nice player, but no no big, big-time big player that's going to get scholarships from everybody. And so they were the only ones that offered me a scholarship. And I like Georgia Tech, but I have to say the main reason was they gave me a scholarship, and I was trying to keep my parents from having to pay too much money.
2: Ah, well, practical is okay. And uh, I remember Tim Keller saying that if you're trying to dis- discern God's will for your life— if you if you only have one option, that probably is God's will for your will for your life. Now, so you get there on campus, and um, you know you you're probably playing pretty well. You made the decision after three years to to drop and go pro. What what does that mean? To I mean, of course, I know what it means when a player gets drafted and gets to go pro. But how does someone go pro in golf?
1: Well. Actually to turn pro, you can just turn pro and become a pro. Just say you're a professional and then you start playing in tournaments and accepting money. So that, that part's easy. The hard part is <clears throat> excuse me. The hard part is getting your card to be able to play on the PGA tour. And that entails going to a series of tournaments that it's called tour school. And back when I did it there was a a local qualifying of seventy two holes and the low twenty or thirty or whatever scores all around the country and those in those locals advanced to a final tournament of 72 holes and when i did it they did that twice a year and at the finals 25 players and ties would get their card to get to go on the pga tour now they just do it once a year and there's a local and then there's a sectional and a final so there's another step to it but basically you got to play in tournaments and play your way onto the PGA tour to get the right to play out there. And so after tech, I, uh, I decided to give my hand, I turned pro and, and went to tour school.
2: How how tough a decision was that to leave college one year shy of, of your degree?
1: Probably wasn't as tough as it should have been. I, I, I told all my boys what I did, <clears throat> pardon me, excuse me. And I, uh, I said I was young and, uh, and stupid and, dreamed of playing golf and that was on my mind. So it <clears throat> wasn't that hard, but uh you know it wasn't the greatest decision, but it worked out okay.
2: Yeah. And so you 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 make that decision, you jump into it. You mentioned your first tournament win, uh was the Danny Class Danny Thomas Classic.
1: That's correct. Yeah. Danny Thomas the okay. Tournament in Memphis. It was you know back then a lot of the tournaments were named after famous people, like you had the Joe Gargiola Tucson Open, the Jackie Gleason Embury Open, Sammy Davis Hartford, and then you had the Danny Thomas Memphis Classic.
2: So, I mean, when you, you're a confident young guy, I'm sure, you're feeling good about where you're at. Um, does a golfer start every tournament thinking he's going to win, or is there, most of them, a little bit more realistic and, and maybe not have that as the ultimate goal?
1: Well, I, I can speak for myself. I mean you go into a tournament believing you can play well and win, but I'm not thinking I'm going to win. I mean, I don't think I've ever won a tournament, uh, going into it thinking I was going to win. I think, you know, you get you don't want to put the cart in front of the horse. So I want to just stay uh, focused and get off to a good start. But I went into, uh, Memphis. It's kind of interesting. I, I've taken a couple of weeks off before Memphis because I have played so poorly. I, uh, Tournament previous the Kemper Open, I shot, I may have shot 85, I think on Friday. I was just playing horrible, and missed qualifying for the U.S. Open, and decided to take a couple weeks off because I needed a break because I was playing so poorly. And sure enough, then I go to Memphis, rested up, feeling really good. Worked, worked on my game, got it in better shape, and things worked out really well. And then I got a chance to win the golf tournament on Sunday.
2: So, at what point of that tournament did you think? I really got a shot here. Was it not till Sunday, or did you feel right off the bat like things are clicking here?
1: Uh, I I don't think it was till Sunday. You know, I I didn't want to get ahead. I hadn't had that many. I I really, that was my first opportunity to win a golf tournament. I hadn't had any chances before. I hadn't had that many top finishes. So I was uh, focused on going out there, playing really good, and giving myself a chance on Sunday. So it wasn't until Sunday that I kind of thought
2: I had a chance to win yeah I'm talking with Larry Mize I'm Paul Batura Larry is a professional golfer you know him from winning the 1987 Masters among other tournaments he now plays on the Champions Tour Larry what is the typical day of a professional golfer look like I mean we see you guys on the weekends and it looks glamorous and uh, you know it's always at the beautiful country clubs and and such but that can't be reality Uh, when you're not in a tournament what does a day look like for you?
1: When I'm at a tournament or when I'm home?
2: When you're home, when you're getting ready, you know, in between tournaments.
1: Well, you know, you, you want to, you know, you think of the tournament that you're going to, if there's anything specific that you need to work on. Um, for example, if there's a golf course that's very tight, you work on a driver. But generally speaking, you just try and get your game in good shape. Uh, I'll get up in the morning and, you know, go out and hit some balls. Uh, where my corner where my game is, I may, I may play. Um, some, but the biggest thing I've always focused on was to make sure that my short game was in, uh, in good shape. I think the short game requires more work than the long game, generally speaking, not that the long game can't, uh, need a lot of work, but you got to keep that short game sharp because the short game is what enables you to score low. Um, and hitting the ball great is wonderful, but if you're not chipping and putting, uh, you're not going to shoot a very good low score. You're not going to shoot a low score. So, I think focusing on that, and I'll be out at the golf course, you know, get up in the morning, be out there practicing, have lunch, practice again, you know, hitting balls, playing, chipping and putting, just hitting all aspects of it. So, everything's in good shape for when I go to the tournament.
2: Yeah. You mentioned your short game, and I've heard you say before you kind of equally, you know, worked on your short game and long game. And most of us, of course, amateurs, love the long game. We go to the driving range and we're just, you know, drilling away. That is obviously not the way to become a champion, Um, but it's probably a little bit more glamorous to be hitting balls 300, 400 yards. Um, You deliberately, like, was that something drilled into you as a young guy to spend more time on your short game?
1: Yeah, my my dad really did drill that into me. I can uh, remember at our uh, house in Augusta, we had a uh, walkway going to the front door. And we would get on one side of the walkway, my dad. And we'd chip it over the walkway and see who could land it closest to the walkway without hitting it. So we were always uh, chipping out in the yard. And they, they even—I can't believe they let me do this. They let me hit wedges from the front yard to the back and the backyard to the front. I would hit wedges <laughs> up and over the house. Wow. Well, I, they tr- they trusted I, you obviously. Yeah. I so and I never hit the house, thank goodness, or at least I never broke any windows. But uh, but yeah, dad always push, you know, you, you gotta be a good putter. You gotta be a good chipper. So he ingrained that to me at a young age. And, uh, and it, it really, really was very important.
2: Did your parents, I, I would imagine they made it to that first masters that you played at in 84.
1: Oh yes. Yeah. They've never missed a masters. They came to every one of them. Obviously they were there when I won and my wife's parents and, uh, uh, one of her siblings was there and my brother and sister were there. So we had the whole family there and it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm glad my parents didn't have a heart attack because with, with, with me, all that was going on.
2: So what was that like to that first tournament to show up and you're no longer the kid on the scoreboard or the kid peering through the fence. You're, uh, you know, a competitor. What what was that like to uh, for a young guy like you?
1: I was so nervous. I'll never forget Monday, first day for practice, it was raining, so I just teed off 10. I was just going to play a couple of holes. I just played 10 and back up 18 because 18's right there. And it was just, weather was too bad. So Tuesday was the first day I went out there and played all the way around. And I teed up on number one. I was so nervous. I could barely keep the ball on the tee and I just hooked it into the ninth fairway, which was to the left of number one. I did the same thing on Wednesday, hooked it in there because I was definitely a right to left player and I could, I could hit some hooks. Um, but Thank goodness! By Thursday, I'd gotten a little bit of the nerves out, and I was, believe it or not, calmer Thursday than I was Tuesday or Wednesday. And I hit a good drive down the middle, but it was uh, a little nerve wracking. And uh, when I first got there,
2: wow! Well, it's it's kind of reassuring, or maybe um, yeah, it's reassuring to hear that someone, a professional golfer, gets nervous. I mean, it, is that uh, the case on every tournament? When you come up to that first shot, are there butterflies every tournament, or is, do you kind of get used to it?
1: Well, you do get a little used to it, but the butterflies are still there. You know, I uh, I think I'm probably not as nervous uh, as time went on. But I, to me, if you're not nervous, that means you don't really don't really care about uh, what happens. So uh, you really uh, the nerves are a good thing. They yeah. help you. They help you concentrate, hit it better, hit it farther. It's, it's, It's a good thing. So I I always I always embrace the nerves.
2: Us mere mortals are always, uh, always wow at the times when the gallery is lined and you're teeing off, thinking like, if I'm up at that tee, no one wants to be there. You know, that's not the spot you want to be. But we've been talking with Larry Mize. I'm Paul Batura. This is What a Life: Lessons from Legends. When we come back, we're going to talk about the 1987 Masters, the uh, the, the tournament that certainly put him, uh, put Larry on the map of uh, golf fans everywhere. Uh, so you're not going to want to miss uh, hearing it straight from him, as he recalls that uh, incredible April day back in 1987. So thanks for listening, and stay tuned after these messages. Well, welcome back. I'm Paul Batura. You've been listening to What a Life, Lessons from Legends. The first uh, part of the program, we've been talking with Larry Mize. Larry is a professional golfer on the Champions Tour and a longtime member of the PGA You know that name because uh, he won numerous tournaments, but probably none bigger than the 1987 Masters, and it was uh, just a memorable, probably the most memorable finish for many uh, in U.S. Masters history. So Larry, thanks for hanging on, and um, we've been talking about kind of your journey uh, back to Augusta, and uh, the 1984 uh, time when you were actually playing the Augusta and the Masters for the first time... Uh, you performed very well. If I recall, you finished eleventh or so.
1: I, I did, Paul. Yes, yeah, yeah. Thanks. I tied for eleventh, which was I was very happy with. You know, you back then you had to finish top. If you finished in the top twenty-four, you automatically got back in next year's Masters. So that guaranteed me that I'd be in back for the nineteen eighty-five Masters. So it was a good week, and uh, I played really well.
2: Who did you, um, you know, once you got a kind of a natural feel for things and a, a regular. Um, big tournament um, player. Was there a player that you gravitated towards that you kind of became good friends with? Anybody mentor you as you grew up?
1: Well, there were a lot of uh, guys that were great to me. Uh, Gary Player was always very nice to me, giving me some uh, helpful hints. Uh, Butch Bayard was very encouraging to me as well. Um, and then Larry Nelson, uh, another, another strong believer, it was uh, very uh, helpful to me. And uh, I uh, very thankful to them. It was how they took me under their wing and gave me some great advice. I mean, Gary player said, why are you going to go out there and, you know, lose your temper and throw shit and ruin all the work you put into it. Cause you get mad, nothing. Uh, you're not going to play very well. Whereas you just to stay, stay calm and let the work happen. And so learning to control my temper and things like that, these veterans were very, uh, it's very nice with golf. I mean, I think that's the nature of golf. We, we enjoy, we play against each other, but yeah, we do help each other. Yeah. And, uh, those were some guys that were very uh, helpful to me.
2: Is it sort of a lonely sport? I mean, you're you're competing against yourself more or less, uh, and of course against others. But um, it's just you know you play in a four, in a foursome, right? Um, or is it not a foursome? Is it a twosome when you no, play?
1: It, 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 well, thre- threesome most of the time. Yeah. Okay,
2: so I mean, do you feel that way? Do you feel like a little isolated, um, or not so much?
1: You know, when you're when you're playing, uh, not too much. Uh, you know and if, if if you are a little bit you've got your caddy there with you which is uh, you know your caddy and friend out there um, but you're right it, it's you've got to be you got to be okay being alone you got to have a little bit of a a loner to it because not so much when you're playing in tournaments but sometimes when you're practicing and preparing sometimes you're alone a lot I mean I've always felt that way and I remember here a good friend of mine, Tom Lehman, said the same thing. You got to have a little loner because, you know, it's it's an individual sport. And, you know, sometimes you are beating balls for hours or chipping and putting for hours. You're all by yourself. And sometimes your wife can't come with you. You're on the road. You're back in the hotel room by yourself. So there's a lot of alone time. And mm. so you've got to be OK with that. And, you know, it, it's not right for everybody. And uh, I was OK with that. And it worked out uh it worked out good,
2: obviously. Yeah, I mean, there have been some players who have famously kind of crashed, um, you know, whether it's excess or just couldn't handle the pressure. Thankfully, you've navigated all of that, and by God's grace, I'm sure. So let's talk about the 1987 Masters. You, I, I hope you don't get tired of talking about it. Um, you, you, Most people focus on Sunday. It was a remarkable day. But um, tell us about Saturday. You were not... You know, you kind of rescued your tournament uh, on the back nine. Is that right?
1: Well, I really did. And, uh, yeah, it's a good subject, so I'm always okay talking about this. Um, I really did because I was trying to shoot myself out of the tournament. I was a two over par through 11 holes. And the course was playing really hard. The scores weren't very low. And I came to 12, that real famous par three, and, excuse me, I hit my uh, tee shot in the water short of the green in the pond and in Gray's Creek. And so I, I dropped back and hit a wedge up there about 10 or 12 feet. So now I've got that for bogey and I made that putt for bogey, which was crucial because you don't want to make anything, but doubles are, you know, just harder to harder to come back from. So that put me three over par. And it was a little bit of a momentum making that putt. Cause I went on to birdie three of the last six holes mm. and shoot even par for the day. Which got me back in contention for the tournament, so put me at uh, two under par. Four under was leading, so I was only two shots back. So Saturday was a big, uh, a big day for me coming in, and uh, the last birdie, the third birdie, was 18. Birdie in 18 just gave me some uh, nice momentum going into Sunday.
2: Is it hard to sleep then on that Saturday into Sunday? I mean, are you all amped up, or by then are you a little bit more, a um, little more cool about it?
1: You know, that that's, that's a good question. I, I, I'm, I'm amped up. I I think I slept good, but I feel sure I had a little hard time going to sleep, but I do remember, uh, I felt had a good feeling when I went to sleep. I think I told Bonnie, my wife, I said, you know, I don't, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I feel really good. And, uh, I, I wasn't predicting I was going to win. I didn't think I was going to win. I just felt like, you know, felt good about it. And I uh, got up the next morning, felt good and, uh, had a good night's sleep. And, uh, It's kind of funny, a little little side note, Uh, people always talk about the kind of purple and lavender kind of shirt that I wore. Um, uh, It was not planned because David, our oldest, is a week short of a year, and so I I got my clothes out Saturday night in the dark because he's sleeping, and I got up the next morning and whoops, uh, I think I thought the pants were navy, and so I had to switch shirts at the last minute, so that uh, (laughs) outfit I wore on Sunday was definitely not planned, but Uh. it uh, it worked out
2: so you're sleeping that night with a one-year-old in your, in your room.
1: Uh, that's correct. I'm staying at my parents' house and uh, Dave is in, in our room with us. And, uh, Hey, that was, that was life on tour. We would, uh, my wife and I would many times in the hotel room, we'd put him down and then we'd go sit in the, in the bathroom until he fell asleep and just, wow. uh, let him go to sleep. And we're sitting in the bathroom, just talking or reading and, uh, That was a life on tour with a, with a baby.
2: You're not uh, painting the glamorous picture that many of us hold in our minds, Larry, right. In terms of professional (laughs) golf. That's, that's great. So you wake up on Sunday morning because you're kind of in the, in the leading pack. You don't tee off early. What do you do in those hours leading up to the biggest round of your life? How do you pass the time and how do you, how do you manage that?
1: You know, I, I, I cannot remember what I did that day. Um, I, uh, you know, you, you, you do. You got you to gotta keep your mind off of it. You don't want to be dwelling on it. I can remember in uh, 1994, I, I had a chance to win. I ended up finishing third. So to give you an idea of what I did that day was 94. Uh, so now at the time, we've got a uh, six-year-old and a three-year-old at the time. And my parents had these pine trees out in front. They were really good climbing trees. So I was out in the front yard playing with them climbing trees uh, <laughs> before before the tournament in 94 because uh, I was in the next to the last group that day, so I was playing really late. But you do stuff like that. I can't remember what I did in 87. That's what I did in 94. And you just do things to keep your mind off of it because you don't want to be thinking about it because it can drain energy out of you if you're thinking about it dwelling on it too much.
2: Yeah, and so you're playing out ahead of Steve and Greg, Norm- Greg Norman and Ballesteros and... You're having a good round, of course, but um, it comes right down to it, and you finish before those other guys, and you're thinking, what? Did you think this is, like, I'm going to be in a playoff, because you didn't really know what Norman was up to.
1: You know, I, I knew I had a chance. You know, I, I came to the last hole knowing I needed to make birdie and uh, hit a good tee shot, knocked it up there about six feet and made the putt for birdie, and that was that was huge to, to, to do that on the 72nd hole. and. I knew that gave me a chance, so they take me over to the uh, Jones cabin, which is a cabin right off the 10th tee, to just wait there and watch on TV, so I just had to sit and wait for them to come in, and Chevy came in behind me, and he got up and down from the bunker for par, so he finished three under along with me, and Greg was the next group, and he hit a great putt that just barely missed, so he was three under, so now Roger Maltby and Ben Crenshaw were the last group, and they're both two under, so they had to birdie, and once they, uh, they'd missed their birdie putts, then the three of us, we headed out to the putting green to get ready to go to the sudden death playoff on number 10.
2: And what type of interaction are you having with the guys? So these are the guys you're competing against, you're going to...
1: Yeah, you know, I, I can't remember if Greg ever came in there or not. Sebby was in there with me, and I'll never forget, my wife reminded me, when Greg hit that putt, and it looked like it was going in to just barely miss. Sebby could tell I was a little uptight. Sebby looked at, hey, Larry, you can breathe now. You know, I guess I was, <laughs> yeah. oh, man, he, he was about to make it. So uh, so there was a little interaction, but not a whole lot. At, at that point in time, we're all focused on our game, and it's, uh, it's pretty intense. So there's not a whole lot of uh, interaction that goes
2: on. So you're, you tee off three of you, and then obviously um, uh, only you and Greg advance to the next hole. What what it described the scene for us if you could if I, if I weren't if I wasn't there what would I be seeing?
1: Well, you know, I, I had a I had a great chance to win it on ten. I had about a ten footer up the hill, and Stevie was you know was off just off the fringe, and he putted it down there about three three feet, and Greg missed his putt, and he tapped in, and I I just barely missed mine, and then surprise to all of us, Stevie missed his putt, so he made bogey, so now it's. Greg and I going on to the last, to number 11, which at least now I only had one top player to beat. And so it was, uh, you know, off to the 11th hole.
2: How bad are the nerves at this point? You know,
1: I felt like the butterflies were flying in formation, is what I like to say it. I mean, <laughs> I was nervous and everything, but you just want those butterflies in formation. And I think, you know, you're playing really well, and I played well all week, and birdie in the last hole was a big deal for me. And so I felt, I was nervous, but I felt, you know, felt pretty good. Cause I had a really good drive, really good second shot on 10. And then I had a good drive down the fairway on 11. And, uh, but then my second shot on 11 didn't quite turn out like I wanted it.
2: So there you are. And you, you know, you're thinking, there's no way I'm going to chip this in. I mean, or are you, did you think like, Hey, anything could happen here?
1: Well, to, to set it up, you know, Greg hits this second. I, I'm, I'm, over to the right and someone walked it off afterwards and they said it was like 99 feet. So I just rounded up a hundred feet and Greg puts his second shot just off the green on the right about 30 or 40 feet away. So I kind of felt like, well, Hey, hit a good pitch shot up there, a little pitch and run, put it around the hole and give myself a short par putt. And I'll put pressure back on Greg because he's a long way from the hole. And the nice thing about the shot was there was only one shot to play. You know, the worst thing you can do in golf is to not be committed to the shot and be indecisive. Mm. Well, you couldn't land a ball on the green because the greens were too hard and fast. I had to use a sandwich, just carried a 56 degree sandwich back then because anything with less loft was going to be too hot. And you practice these shots around these greens because they got the sticky ryegrass and you practice bumping it up, up, up the little slopes like I had there going to the 11th green. So it's a shot you practice. And I just, Picked a spot, and shot came off perfect. Hit the spot, bounced a couple of times, got on the green, and I knew it was going to be a, a right-to-left breaker. And sure enough, it held my attention the whole way there, and it kept curving to the hole. And sure enough, it did go in, and I threw my wedge up in the air and ran around screaming like a madman because <laughs> I was just uh, – people say, how excited were you? I said, well, that pretty much says it all. I mean, I was screaming. It was uh, unbelievable to to knock that shot in at that particular time.
2: Now is that sort of an uncharacteristic response from you when you got that shot? Are you kind of a more reserved person? Like, did that shock people to see you respond that way?
1: Uh, that's a, that's a good question. I, I would say maybe a little bit. I mean, I'd only won once before on tour. I won Memphis, and I got excited. I mean, I kind of, you know, made a made a twenty twenty five footer on for birdie on the last hole to win uh, Memphis, and I did knock my visor off my head, but uh, I didn't run around screaming. So. Uh, I think that was probably yeah I'm probably considered more a little more reserved than that. Yeah, I think that's fair.
2: I mean, it's the equivalent of a walk-off home run game 7, you know, of the of the World Series. You can be forgiven for that exuberance. And uh man, did your life change after that? Um in a sense of uh you know, the the all the attention that just fell on you. How did you manage that?
1: It, it really did. Um you know, I mean I do not believe I changed, but my life changed obviously uh I became people, people, more people knew me. Um, I got, you know, opportunities to do whether it was more outings, some overseas play and just the attention I got from the media. Uh, It was a uh, it was definitely a change. And I mean, it was great, but it was something I I had to uh, get used to. And as time went on, something I had to make some adjustments because I kind of got things out of whack there a little bit.
2: We're talking with Larry Mize, professional golfer. We've been talking about the 1987 Masters. Um, So, Larry, you talk about things got a little out of whack. Uh, More ego, more just getting your life straight with your family so you're not, uh, you know, have an imbalance there. How can you explain that?
1: Yeah, you know, ego could be involved in there, but I think it was, I had to be reminded. And over the next couple of years, I didn't play as well. I still played okay. Um, But I'm a little farther down on the money list. And Larry Moody, who leads our Bible study, had to kind of clarify it for me. Um, I was I was getting a little too much significance from being a master's champion and forgetting that I'm I'm significant for only one reason. And that's because God loved me enough to send Jesus Christ to die for me. Mm. And so I kind of had to realize that I'll confess I shed a few tears and had to get my priorities back in order uh, because winning a big tournament like that, I mean, it's a big deal. Um, But it can't compare to knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And continuing to realize my significance, my security, and my satisfaction are all tied up in my relationship with Jesus Christ and what he he did for me, uh, that got me back on track. And then the struggles ended, and sure enough, I started playing better. But more importantly, I had the peace that only God could give me.
2: Yeah, boy. And that's not like turning a light switch, right? I mean, it's, there are steps and it takes time. You mentioned the Bible study that was on the tour, the probably people who have influenced you. Um, what are some of the disciplines that you employed to kind of level things off?
1: Well, you know, there's nothing like God's Word. Uh, I, I enjoy having some scripture in my yardage book that I can look at from time to time. Sometimes I use my time between shots on the golf course to memorize scriptures and then to, uh, you know, recite them in my head over and to kind of keep me straight. Because as soon as I know in my walk, as soon as I get away from God's word, that's when I get in trouble. But as long as I stay in God's word and allow his word to continue to transform me into being closer to Christ, and I've, and I've still got a long way to go, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what helps keep me grounded and keep me uh on
2: the right path. Yeah. We you know there's a long long standing debate about whether God cares who wins tournaments or who wins games. Uh my belief is that he cares about everything. There's nothing that f- happens without his knowledge and without his permission. Um d- do you employ prayer a lot as you play? Not necessarily to win but uh as a discipline as you go hole to hole?
1: Yeah, I do. I'll pray out there. And, and one of the things I like to pray about is I just pray Free to do my best, and I pray if it be Your will to win for me to play well and win. If it's not Your will, then if I'm not going to glorify God, I don't want with a win. There's no need to win. Mm. Uh, So that's my way of thinking. If it's His will, but um, the thing is, to me, it's okay to ask for something. It's just when I don't get it, I'm sure not going to be upset with God because that that just means it wasn't His will for me to get it. So I'm, I'm comfortable with whatever the answer is. But God's okay with us asking. I think. And so uh, I do pray that I can bring him on. My biggest prayer is to bring him honor and glory in my golf game or whatever I do.
2: Boy, that's great. Um, we've talked about a few names here. One of the obviously synonymous with the Masters is Arnold Palmer. Um, a couple of years and many years ago now, I worked with a golf pro, did a book uh, on Arnold Palmer called Mentored by the King. Um, you've alluded uh, to Arnold's last champion's dinner. And uh, the fact that he stood up and, or at least offered a few words, what do you remember about that night?
1: Oh, just, you know, Arnold was very special. Um, and unfortunately at this point in time, I can't remember much other than it was a special night and I cannot recall exactly what he said, but it meant a lot for all of us, I think, to have Arnold stand up and say something. Cause we, we, we kind of had a feeling, we didn't know how much longer we'd have him. You could tell his, his health was failing and uh, so we were just happy that the time we did have. It.
2: Yeah. That champion's dinner is sort of a hallowed tradition. And, you know, you, of course, got to host it the year after you won. What was that like?
1: Um, that was, it was great. But I guess for me at that time, I was a little feeling of, uh, uncertainty uh, i wasn't as comfortable as i have let young guys know i've enjoyed telling young guys when they want it i just like like a zach johnson who i knew well another neat believer when he's coming back i just said enjoy the dinner you belong there just as much as anybody does you, you and have a great time because i i just some of the guys i didn't know of course i knew i knew jack and i knew arnold um uh, but I, I, I was a little uncomfortable as much as I enjoyed the night. And obviously, I've learned to know that, you know, I, I belong there just like everybody else. And I've enjoyed passing that along to the younger guys, as I said. But it was a fun night, but a little bit of, you know, feeling of uncomfortableness because I was felt uh, <laughs> like I was a little bit out of my element.
2: Yeah, Well, I think that probably reflects your humility. <clears throat> By the way, what do you do with the green jacket uh, once you have it? Does it go in the closet at Augusta? Does it come home with you? You put it under glass. What happens?
1: Yeah. The the year you're the reigning champion, you, you take it with you. That's why you'll see, like you saw Sergio Garcia wearing it at Wimbledon the year. He's the reigning champion. So you get to keep it with you. You're, you're the reigning champion. You go back to defend, you take it back to the club and it stays there the rest of the time. Unless you need it. You know, if you need it for something, the green Island country club did a, did a room in my honor and they want to do a portrait. So I got the jacket. My brother brought it to me and, uh, we lives in Augusta, and they took a picture and did a portrait of me and my jacket, and then I took it back. So they're very nice about giving it to you if you need it, but it's kind of nice. It stays there, and you I wear it Tuesday night at the dinner, and I, I may wear it around the clubhouse sometimes. They like you to wear it there, but it's uh, it stays there other than the year you're reigning champion.
2: And it's your jacket. It's not like uh, they trade, not like someone else is wearing your jacket on another year.
1: Right. It's my jacket. It's got my name on the inside of it, and uh, it's it's my jacket. Yeah. It's yeah. uh and I, you know, I I enjoy wearing it there. It'd, it'd be kind of awkward a little bit to wear it anywhere else, but it's great <laughs> wearing it there.
2: Yeah. Um, before we go, you, you talked about the transformation in your life in 86 uh, with the birth of your son. Talk a little bit more about that. I mean, becoming a dad is a huge thrill, but what it did for you spiritually sounds like it was even more thrilling.
1: Well, there's no doubt. I mean, that is the... Uh, there's no greater decision anybody can make in their life, as far as I'm concerned, other than coming to the realization that we are separated from God because, you know, God's perfect and we're not. And uh, our mistakes, our sins separate us from God. And, you know, God sent Christ to uh, to, to take care of that, to reconcile us to himself. I mean, that's, that's the amazing thing about mm-hmm. Christianity to me is God's love for us. God came searching for us. I mean, Adam and Eve, you know, messed up in the garden of Eden, but God came searching for them and God's searching for us. And, uh, we need to respond and accept his, uh, his payment through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's just, uh, it, I can't put it into words. It was the greatest thing, greatest decision ever made. Uh, my wife became a Christian. She, uh, was probably two years later. She, uh, she made the decision and, uh, it's, uh, it's just awesome. Mm. And, uh, our marriage our parenthood everything we do uh christ has been a positive influence yeah and i can't uh, well i think you it, know it's go ahead. put into work it's it's the greatest thing i've ever done it's a journey that uh god is guiding me and i i mess up sometimes but he's a forgiving god and it's uh, it's unbelievable
2: well i love the fact that here we're talking with a master's champion and you're pointing to the master I mean as great as it was that Sunday in April of 1987 you're telling me it pales in comparison to what it, it means to you to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and uh, people who are listening to this hopefully if they're feeling that compunction or if they're feeling uncertain about life uh, look to this uh, testimony this is a wonderful one and Larry I appreciate you sharing it with us
1: oh, Paul it's my pleasure and, and you're right I mean it's Uh, I like what you said. It's great being a master's champion, but it's a lot greater to be a child of the master. And, you know, that was the, uh, I gotta say, that was the greatest thing about my back master's victory is the platform it gave me to share my faith, to let people know that, you know, you can be successful and a winner and competitive in this world and still have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, and it's, uh, and that's the most important thing.
2: Well, you have done that well. And, uh, May the Lord give you many more years of doing that. Will we see you uh, at the Masters in 2024?
1: I will be there. Uh, I'm no longer playing. Uh, 2023 was my last competing uh, competing Masters, and so I will be there for the dinner and the par three, but uh, I will not be playing in the tournament, which is, you know, kind of tough, but it's the right decision. The golf course is just too long for me. I'm 65 years old. It's just too long for me to to play and be competitive.
2: Well, maybe you can go up and help the kid on the scoreboard.
1: There you go. I'd, I'd love to.
2: <laughs> Larry, thanks so much for the time, and Happy New Year.
1: Paul, you too. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me.
2: Thanks for listening to What a Life with Paul Batura.
0: Let him know what you're thinking. Follow Paul on Twitter at Paul Batura, or you can reach out to him on email at paul at paulbatura.com. Most importantly, live a life that emulates the admonition of the Apostle Paul, whose teachings are the inspiration for this show. Writing to believers at Philippi, Paul urged them, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We'll see you next time on What a Life.